0: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Not as nice as Brian Eno's bells that we were playing on the sound system a little earlier, but Those you can take home, this one you have to leave. Hi, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. This is number four in the seminars about long-term thinking. And I want to say something about next months because there's a significant difference. Those of you who've been coming to a few of these, they've always been in Fort Mason, several different places. But uh, for the first time, and I hope only time, we have to leave Fort Mason on March 12th to hear Rusty Schweikert talk about asteroids in the Presidio at the Officers' Club, very cool place with very thick walls, the oldest building in, uh, in San Francisco. They used to say, Rusty Schweikert is right here. you want to stand and give him a taste of what's coming, Rusty? <laughs> and his subject is the asteroid threat over the next, making us feel puny, thinking about 10,000 years, over the next 100,000 years. At, uh, and in that period of time, things get often quite serious. Hello. Why did that just happen? Did somebody unplug something? Uh, Ben and Kevin, would you make sure that we're connected to a visual signal here? Um, We have another distinguished guest here this evening, Paul Barron from Rand Corporation from back when. He's right over there. I'll take a stand. Paul helped save the world back in the 50s and 60s. He's the one who invented packet switching uh, when it was a means to get around the loss of, of uh, telephonic communication and was a way of, of convincing the Soviets that they could strike us first, but we could still strike back. With This was when the Cold War was about that sort of thing. And that was a, uh, a truly... Uh, fixable communication system, which in fact uh, led to the Internet, which has changed everything. So thank you again, Paul. Uh, Paul Barron is one of many... Two things. You saved America, the world, and also, by the way, gave us the Internet. That's a lot. (laughs) And Rand Corporation has been in the thick of a lot of amazing things. The, um, I work with Global Business Network, which does scenario planning. Scenario planning was invented at RAND by Herman Kahn, uh, who for some reason got uh, put forward as a villain in Dr. Strangelove uh, as, a, as a model, supposedly, for, uh, for the Peter Sellers part. But in fact, he is one of the great heroes of the Cold War and one of the great inventors of serious long-term thinking and serious thinking about the future. Uh, In 1965, he did a book called The Year 2000, thinking 35 years ahead, that was substantially ahead of many things, and it was the first place where I saw... I'm sort of riffing here while we figure out the computer situation, because this is a slide-intensive show. Uh, That was the first place, actually, that I saw somebody say that computers are not only of the essence, but they are multiplying in their power uh, tenfold every few years, and that will change everything because it will not stop. So back in '65, Kahn was saying that basically the, the, what moore 's law has, has brought to the world uh, was going to come, and people who read that and thought about it started to plan accordingly and rightly so How are we doing? Hey <laughs> Now, all we've got to figure out is how that it shut itself down so it doesn't happen again. Jim Dewar has been at uh, the Rand Corporation for 25 years and is head of a brand new thing called, as you can see here, the Frederick S. Pardee Center for quite a lot of, uh, quite a mouthful. <laughs> and, but it is serious long term thinking and that is rare to see in any kind of fundamental institution, especially a fundamental institution like RAND, which has so much influence on government policy, on various organizational policies, and it's exactly the kind of thing you would like to see their customers thinking about. And so we very much welcome uh, Jim Dewar tonight to talk to us about serious long-term thinking. Let me remind you that if you have cards uh, that show who's speaking next and after that and so on, on the back is a place to write questions. And the way we do questions is go ahead and write questions and, send, and give them to one of the volunteers with the yellow hard hat, and they'll pass them up to me, and I'll sift through the most embarrassing ones and hit Jim with those at the end of his talk. Uh, there's also a place on there to put an email address, if you don't get email from this series at present but would like to, just put your email address there. If there's somebody you know who you think would be interested in this series and wouldn't mind getting email about them, put their email address there. Thanks a lot. Over to you, Jim.
1: Thank you. I know one of the questions you're asking is, what's his business card look like? Yes, it does have a fold in it. That's how long the name of the center is. <laughs> I'm going to talk about long-term policy analysis. I'm not going to answer that first question. I'll leave you to wonder where I fall on that one. I want to start out by addressing what policy analysis is. I've been at RAND for 25 years, and I still don't have a good definition of it. So it occurred to me that you guys might be wondering yourselves. Here are two definitions of the word policy and I've highlighted the parts that I resonate with. To my mind, policy is a plan. It's at a high level. It's selected from among alternatives, and it's constrained by a set of conditions. So that policy analysis becomes a systematic means of both generating those policy alternatives and of selecting the best among them. So you can think of policy analysis kind of high-level problem-solving. Why am I talking to you about policy analysis? Well, for one thing, that's what I know about. For another, I'm interested in long-term policy analysis. I'm also the Frederick S. Pardee Professor of Long-Term Policy Analysis at the Rand Graduate School. Rand does have a graduate school, and it gives a Ph.D. in public policy. And in that class, it's basically a shared inquiry because there are no books on long-term policy analysis, so we're trying to figure out what that might be and whether or not it makes sense. Is it, in fact, an oxymoron? But that's about me. The reasons that I'm hoping you're interested in it are twofold. One is that the structure that we're trying to bring to long-term policy analysis should be useful for just about any kind of long-term thinking. The other one, to me, is kind of interesting. It occurs to me that if we're able to make the case for long-term policy analysis, then why couldn't we have other things like long-term economics and long-term international relations and long-term political science? That would be a way of enculturating long-term thinking directly into the disciplines that we know and love and would make it much more commonplace, which is one of the things that this seminar series is intended to try to get at. How do we make good long-term thinking more commonplace? So that's why I'm talking to you about policy analysis. The long-term, one of the points I need to make here, I'm going to wander, so I'm going to try and take this out. I'm an inveterate wanderer. I don't really mean long term as much as I mean deep uncertainty. And deep uncertainty for us is where there's some uncertainty about even how the system works, let alone how. Let me see if I can get. (laughs) Okay. Now we're done. <laughs> Yay. I mean deep uncertainty, and, and amongst these, the first amongst equals for me up here is this how the system works. If you know how the system works, if you know how interest rates are going to affect your life, you just don't know what the interest rates are going to be in two years or five years or thirty years, then you basically don't know what the value is, but you know how the system works. So we call that parametric uncertainty. You don't know what the right parameter is. But if you're having troubles with your climate, and you don't even know how the climate works, then you've got structural uncertainty. You can't even agree on how climate works, let alone what the right numbers are to put into it. So when you've got structural uncertainty, you've got deep uncertainty. So in the long term, you tend to have deep uncertainty, but deep uncertainty can also happen in the short term. So there are problems in the short term that also are characterized by deep uncertainty, And therefore, the kinds of techniques that we're going to talk about with respect to long-term policy analysis are useful for any problems of deep uncertainty, which is a good thing. It widens the applicability of the notions that we're going to be talking about. I want to talk just a little bit about the Pardee Center. The mission is to improve the methods of long-term policy analysis and, as in the name, improve global policy and the human condition. And we really want to be a clearinghouse for the notion of long-term policy analysis. Center's niche is 35 to 200 years. Fred Pardee picked that himself. When you endow a center, you get to pick the niche. Fred actually worked at RAND from 1959 to about 1970 with Herman Kahn here, Olaf Helmer, Paul Barron, all of these thinkers about the future. The 35 to 200 years, I think, came largely from Herman Kahn. In 1965, he wrote a book called The Year 2000, which is a fascinating read, if you can get hold of it. And his next book was called The Next 200 Years. So there's your 35 and 200 there. Olaf Helmer, I'll talk about a little bit later on, but Olaf and Paul Barron went on from RAND to form the Institute for the Future, which is still down in Menlo Park. So a lot of deep thinkers back there at RAND when Fred was there, still thinks about that sort of thing, still wants to think about the long term, and that's why he set up the center. Okay, I'm just about done with the throat clearing now, and we can get on to the real meat. I've got three things I want to talk about. One is why we think the concept of long term policy analysis makes sense. That is, that you ought to try to analyze the long-term rather than just think about it. Next, I'll talk about what we know about the structure of long-term policy analysis, and then I'm going to show you a method that we're using that is new for long-term policy analysis to give you some flavor for what's happening in methodologies for thinking about the long-term. We know that humans can make very successful long-term policy decisions. The people who set up the Intercontinental Railway in the United States knew that it was going to have a profoundly positive impact on the country, and it did, so they knew going in that this was going to be a big deal, and it was a very successful policy. This is George Kennan. In 1947, he wrote an article in Foreign Affairs that argued that the way to worry about the Soviet Union post-World War II was not to figure out how to beat the Soviets on the battlefield, since both Napoleon and Hitler had failed miserably trying to do that. But he said the way to solve that problem is to contain them, keep them from expanding any more than they are, and they will collapse under their own weight. So that set the strategy of containment for the, United Na- for the United States in the Cold War and arguably 40 years later was successful. And this was something that Kennan thought about very deeply with his understanding of the Soviet Union. The irony, some of the irony is that he thought it would only take 10 years and he didn't like the way they implemented containment. But the notion of containment was very carefully considered over the long term and its effects were that the Soviet Union would collapse, and they did. So again, a very successful long-term policy decision. And even in our own lives, we make decisions that affect the long-term, whether it be our education or the education of our children. So we know that people can make good long-term policy decisions. We also know they can stumble. Everybody's got their own favorite example of how people have stumbled trying to think about the long-term, and this is my particular favorite. One of the reasons it's my favorite is because this is a trend that is so long. It goes from 1890 to 1973, and it's very nearly a straight line. I mean, that's a remarkable, remarkable trend. And yet, even with the crisis, the oil crisis in 1973, 1974, we knew that was going to change. We knew that we were going to be off on a different trajectory, and we knew we were going to have to be more energy efficient, And how well did we do? Those were what people thought we would be able to achieve. This is what happened. Now, this is the good news. It says that you can fail not only miserably, but you can fail on the right side somehow. But it is very difficult to envision a future that's very different from the past. And that's part of the challenge of long-term policy analysis, of course. I'm a mathematician, and I'd like to be able to prove that the absence of long-term policy analysis has caused problems. Well, that's kind of hard to do, but there is one interesting piece of a proof, and that is John Maynard Keynes, back in 1919, wrote an article that said, the Allies are trying to be... Punitive with Germany after World War I, and that's a bad idea. We ought to take a longer-term approach and help them reconstitute in a way that's more benign. And if we don't, that could lead to another war. It did. We came out of World War Two, and we didn't make the same mistake. So here's a case where prospectively somebody said, you ought to think long-term here. If you don't, you get yourself in trouble, and we did. I really like it. That's as close as I can come to a proof. But really all we need is a lot of evidence of people that actually did analysis, whether or not they knew they were doing it. They were thinking very analytically about the long term, and they turned out to be successful. You can see three or four of those. The second India study is an interesting one. This was done by the Ford Foundation in 1965. And the reason they did it was because they projected using trend extrapolation on demography that by the year 2000, there would be a second India in India's borders. That is, that the population would double, and how was India going to handle that doubling of population? Well, whether or not what they recommended actually turned out well, the thing that's most virtuous about this is that came back in 1995 and said, "Okay, let's go back, take a look at that, and see what we did right and wrong. So they were very rarely to long-term planners close the loop like this. And what they found was they got a couple of things wrong. They missed the Green Revolution, which really helped India, and they missed the impact of the education of women, which is also very profound in India over 1965 to 2000. Another one I want to talk about is the Social Security system. People had to think long term when they set up the Social Security system because it was all about people retiring and being able to pay for their retirement. But the thing to me that's most impressive about the Social Security system in the US is that we still have it. And the reason we still have it is because Franklin Roosevelt saw very clearly, he wanted this desperately. He knew there were going to be a lot more old people as time went on. He wanted something that would help old people. From the time he was governor to the time he was president, he was very interested in having some kind of Social Security system. But he knew that the winds of change were fickle, and he saw very clearly that if he advertised this as old-age insurance and gave everybody a Social Security number, that it would become entrenched and be very hard for people to take out in the next administration. And that's been true ever since. We still have the Social Security system, and there had been other Social Security systems attempted. So he clearly did a good job of long-term thinking in how to make this system stick. The last one I want to mention just briefly is We all beat up on federal bureaucracies, but I think the Federal Communications Commission did a remarkable job of going from 1965 when the only thing you could connect to phone lines was your ear and voice. Over three or four large adaptive decisions in the next 35 years to the point where we could put Paul Barron's packet switching on there and get the Internet. So this was a case of a a federal bureaucracy that did a very good job of taking an adaptive planning approach over the long term to be able to very carefully put computers onto phone lines. So we know that there's good stuff going on there. So we have prima facie evidence that long-term policy analysis is doable, that people have been doing it, but it hasn't been written down anywhere in a coherent sense. So that's what we've been trying to do, is bring some kind of structure to it. So I'll go through some of the pieces of that structure now. It seems that there are kind of two types of long-term policy issues. One are the ones that clearly have long-term consequences from our near-term actions. So... Nuclear waste storage is one of the obvious examples, and research and development is another one, but these are all all in the nature of if we make significant changes now in these, we know they'll have significant effects over the long term, and we ought to think about what those are and whether or not those are the ones we want. And the other type is where we've got long-term objectives that are going to take a long time to reach, and we need to start doing something about them now just about anything to do with outer space falls in this category. During the Cold War, national security was very much along those lines because we had to get into research and development the kinds of things that we were going to want to put on the battlefield 15 or 20 years down the road. So a couple different kinds of issues so that, again, there are a lot of issues that could benefit from long-term policy analysis. I talked about what short-term policy analysis is. Here are the canonical steps in short-term policy analysis. You set the context, you generate alternatives, you project those out into the future, you value those projections, and you pick the best one. Five classical steps for doing policy analysis. Well, how well do those translate into long-term policy analysis? If we can do the same thing there, we're done. We've got a set of rules we've got all the tools for short-term policy analysis. Not too bad as far as setting context and generating alternatives, though that can be difficult, but the farther out you get, the tougher it's going to be to project consequences. And, in fact, it's going to be tougher to value those consequences, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. So coming to some kind of sound policy is going to be a challenge for long-term policy analysis. But the thing we recognized when we got into this is that there's also a zeroth step in long-term policy analysis that you don't have in short-term policy analysis. And that is you have to get someone's attention. In short-term policy analysis, the decision-maker is likely to come to you and say, I've got a problem. It's the other way around, typically, in long-term policy analysis. But developing sound policy is not the only reason to do policy analysis, either short-term or long-term. There are quite a variety of other reasons that decision-makers value policy analysis. We, at RAND, we have people going in and out of the government with each change of the administration. And we had one come back recently and say, the most use I got out of policy analysis was the framework that it gave me for thinking about the problem. I didn't pay much attention to the recommendations of the study. But it gave me a way to frame the thousands of things that were going on in my head and let me get straight what kind of policy I wanted out of it. We can usefully complexify issues that have been oversimplified and vice versa. We can identify There are a lot of reasons here. There's a nice chapter in in Herman Kahn's book, The Year 2000. I recommend it. It's great reading because it talks about a hundred things that are sure to happen by the year 2000. It's great fun to go back and look at those. But Chapter 10 also talks about several of these reasons for doing policy analysis other than to come to a sound policy. And all of those carry over very nicely into long-term policy analysis, and there's probably a couple you can add, including looking for slow disasters like asteroids and being a lobby for the future. That is, the future really needs a lobby. So this is a structure for long-term policy analysis, and let me now try and fill in some of these holes here. There are quite a variety of ways of projecting long-term consequences, though we may not think of them in that way. So now I'm going to try and deal with that aspect of of our matrix here. Trend extrapolation is pretty good for some things, like demography. And over time, there have been a lot of variations on trend extrapolation with envelope curves and cross-impact analysis and a variety of others that have increased the usability of different kinds of trend extrapolation. So don't give up on those for the long term. Historical analogies, thinking in time, is a book that was written by Richard Neustadt shown here, in Ernest May, and it's on the long now reading list. It's the best book, in fact, we think the only book of its kind that tells about the right way to use historical analogies in thinking about policy. And since at my talk, I get to talk about one that I had fun with, and that is a little paper I wrote on printing and the internet, and the parallels that you can draw between printing press in Europe and printing in Asia as the first one-to-many communications medium, and the Internet as the first what I think of as any-to-many communications medium. And it gave me a nice way to think about how the Internet ought to play out and how it's likely to play out. Very powerful historical analogy from the printing press. Scenario planning, as Stuart mentioned, it started at Rand with Herman Kahn and Melt Weiner and people like that. Probably the best application of it was at Royal Dutch Shell, and several good examples of things that went right with planning at Royal Dutch Shell. This is Peter Schwartz, who did a lot of that work. He was also implicated in the Montfleur scenarios, which are probably among the most Famous of the scenario analysis in the sense that they had the largest impact. The Montfleur scenarios were scenarios that were done for South Africa when they were transitioning from apartheid. And they became part of the national debate on the right way to transition from apartheid. And people have given them credit for allowing South Africa to think their way clear to a nonviolent way to make the transition. Simulation and modeling, I've put up a couple of global models here. The Club of Rome was one done back in the 60s that said we were going to run out of food and people were going to be starving. They found out a couple of problems with the model, and it kind of put a bad name on modeling, but modeling is coming back into its own now with things like climate modeling. Science fiction, there's H.G. Wells, there's Arthur C. Clarke. Science fiction as opposed to science fantasy can help us think our way through some of the situations. It's a good way to think about the future. Exploratory modeling is again using computers, but using computers in a very different way. It's using computers to do, rather than to predict, which is what these are trying to do. This is basically computational what ifing What if we did this? What if we did that? And I'll come back to this because... The third piece I'm going to talk about is a way of doing robust decision-making. And this comes from the book that we just published out of the Party Center. Grand theories about how the world works. For those of you who know Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel that, that said why the last 13,000 years of human history unfolded the way they did His next book is going to be The Collapses of Past Societies due out at the end of this year. And he and I are jointly teaching a course now. He teaches the course, the part of the course that talks about the collapses of societies. And I teach the part of it that says how you keep societies from collapsing today. It's great fun. Daniel Bell wrote the Post-Industrial Society back in 1972 because he had a theory about how industrial societies work, and therefore what the industrial society was going to transition to. And, of course, we all now talk about the post-industrial society. Having deep insight and vision, this, we talked about George Kennan. George C. Marshall had a plan for how to get out of World War II. Individuals can have very powerful insights into the future, They can also have wrong, very powerful insights into the future. But it's one way of helping to think about longer-term consequences. And expert opinions, the Delphi technique is something that started at RAND. It's a way of combining expert opinions to try and get a better opinion out of a bunch of experts than you would get from any single one. And this was set up by Olaf Helmer, Norm Dahlke, and T.J. Gordon. He was the only one I could find a picture of, so he wins. He's still doing Delphi at the United Nations University on project on the Millennium Project, which is trying to look out 3,000 years. How do you value long-term projections? Well, values can vary in time and space. We know that values can change over time, and we've seen changes in these values over the last 50 years. And for those of you who have kids, no matter how hard you try, your kids are not going to have exactly the same values you do. So values do change over time, and thinking about what people are going to value 35 years out in the future is a challenge. And the farther out you look, the more likely you are for your problems to get Broader in space, too. And once you get regional or global or something like that, then you run into all of the different competing values that you see spatially as well. This is a very hard problem. It needs some more thinking. There are some pieces of this, like the Human Development Index that comes out of the United Nations, that tries to put everything on a single index. But this is tough. It needs a lot more thinking. You talk to economists about what's the proper discount rate for the future, and they absolutely flounder. It's very tough. Third piece, how do you get someone's attention? Well, strong images are very important in getting someone's attention, and unfortunately, disasters are easier to sell than... Happy outcomes. So we know that dystopias are probably a better way of getting people's attention than if you only did something right, it would be even better than it is now. Beyond that, there aren't any magic bullets. Here are at least four ways to do it. For those of you who notice nothing but men, there's Rachel Carson. She wrote The Silent Spring about what pesticides were doing and how they were likely to be a bad thing for Earth and its inhabitants, and she very definitely got people's attention, probably spawned the the environmental movement, and there are slightly more crass ways of getting people's attention. So that's what we know about the structure of long-term policy analysis we have all of these tools that we can apply for it and the question is is there some way that we can talk about when to apply which tools and where and this is what we know about that there's a three-dimensional space here how complex is your problem does it have a lot of pieces to it or is it pretty simple Uh, how uncertain is its future. Can you characterize how the system works or do you have deep uncertainty about it? And how many options do you have? Is it go or no go, buy or don't buy? Or do you have a whole lot of options where you can do a little bit of this and see what happens or try some of that? So this is kind of the space that we're dividing all of the issues into and all of the methods that we talked about are at least somewhat useful in this space. If you pick this point right here, where it's very uncertain, it's very complex, and you've got a whole lot of options, then something like trend extrapolation may not be the best thing. But here's about all we know about that. If the problem, even if it's complex, if it's pretty well characterized, then you're better off, you're in a situation where you can really use a lot of the powerful techniques of short-term policy analysis. A lot of the decision-making mechanisms for short-term policy analysis are very useful if you've got the problem pretty well characterized. It's when you start into deeper uncertainty that you have problems. But what if the situation isn't too complex? For their scenario planning is probably a pretty good example. Scenarios, if you come up with four or five scenarios, people can think about those scenarios and pretty well, because it's not too complex, four or five scenarios should pretty well cover it and you can pretty easily get people's agreement on which scenario you like and come up with a policy. In the rest of that region, it's a lot tougher you got very complex problems, you got a lot of uncertainty, and you got a lot of policy options. So I want to talk now about the third piece of this, and that is a new method for doing long-term policy analysis and specifically for doing robust decision-making. Robustness. I need to talk a little bit about that. It's one way to judge alternative strategies and a typical decision-maker will instinctively look for robust decisions under deep uncertainty, will look for decisions that are good across a variety of futures. There are a variety of ways to to decide on what... There are a variety of definitions for robustness. The one I'm going to be talking about is regret. We want decisions with little regret, and that is... Regret is the difference between the performance of a strategy in a given future and the performance of the best strategy in that future. What does that mean? Well, this is where I'm coming back to the book that we've written. Let me talk about an example of a robust strategy that minimizes regret, and that's whether or not to carry an umbrella. I figure you guys know about that. In Southern California, that's our optimal strategy. up here in Northern California, if you guess wrong, your maximum regret is that you're going to get wet and cold. On the other hand, if it's rainy, the optimum strategy is to carry an umbrella. But if the sun suddenly comes out and stays out, your maximum regret is that either you're cluttered up with this umbrella, or you forgot you had it at the restaurant, and you leave it there. So if you're uncertain, a strategy that minimizes regret would be keep an umbrella in the car. So now you have minimized your maximum regret. So it's not a great strategy, but it's one that minimizes your maximum regret. So that's what we mean by minimizing regret. So Now we're talking about robust decision-making, and the focus of robust decision-making, be it the kind I'm going to describe in the next few view graphs or be it some other kind of coming up with robust decisions, has a slightly different focus than normal. You're not talking about what will the future bring, but what can we do today that best keeps us on track no matter what the future brings? That is, can we take a step that is in the direction of where we want to go without closing off options of worlds that could happen to us, but we don't know whether or not they are yet. And the approach is different. The approach that I'm going to describe to you has four pieces of it. One, it's going to consider a lot of scenarios, literally up to millions. It's going to look for these robust minimum regret strategies... It's going to worry about adaptivity, and I'll talk about that. And it's going to be designed for interactive exploration, and I'll talk a lot about that. So consider the following problem. You're worried about pollution. You know that economic growth is pretty tightly coupled with pollution. The only, when you grow economically, you pollute more. The only way to stop polluting is to stop growing economically. There's just too tight a coupling between those two. And what you'd like to do is decouple those somehow so you could grow economically without polluting. How do you do that? Well, you do technologies that aren't polluting or you build things that, that are environmentally friendly or so on and so forth. So now you want to come up with some strategies that will help decouple economic growth from pollution so you can have economic growth without destroying the environment. Well, let's talk about one, and that is taxing polluters. So all we're going to think about is strategies that tax polluters. Well, what's the right tax? What we'll talk about first is just a flat tax, 2% or 0.8% or 5%, and it's just going to stay there for 25 years. It's the fairest, fairest sort of strategy. If you pollute, you get taxed 5% for the pollution that you put into the environment. So there's a set of alternative strategies, and now you don't know what the world is going to give to you. Well, you want to be able to generate a variety of worlds, You know that if you tax too much, when the economy's not doing well, the economy's going to suffer more. You know if the the economy's doing very well and you don't tax enough, people will just pay the tax and go right on polluting. So you know that that you have to be careful on what your tax is, so it's going to depend on what that world's like. And it depends on the things that relate to pollution and pollution taxes. So you need something that generates a bunch of worlds for you. Some would call this a model. We call it a scenario generator. And what does that scenario generator have in it? All of the things related to the strategies and the problem that you're worried about. So it's got stuff in there about pollution and how much the environment can stand. It's got stuff about economic growth and how that's likely to play out. It's got populations in there. It's a full model of the world. So now you've got something that will generate any kinds of worlds you want and you've got all these alternative strategies and you say, okay, I want to play these strategies against a whole bunch of future worlds. So I'm going to take each one of these, let's say, ten strategies and I'm going to play them against hundreds of worlds. And I'm not going to pick those willy-nilly. I'm going to try and pick a set of worlds that pretty well covers the space of worlds that we could have One that has high population growth, but medium economic growth, but no decoupling, so a lot of pollution, so a lot of environmental damage. And another world that has a different set of, of parameters like that. So there's a whole bunch of these worlds that you could generate, and you want to pick a set that covers that space. So this is handmade for computers. So now you take each one of those strategies and you run it against... 500 worlds well that creates 5,000 scenarios so a scenario is a strategy a three percent tax and against one of these worlds and now you get the human involved and the human is going to look at this ensemble of scenarios and say well okay which one does best well, you can have you can ask the computer that. You can say, computer, go find me the one with minimum regret over a wide variety of futures. So now the computer can start showing you pictures like this. You know that whether or not your tax is going to do well is strongly dependent on economic growth rate and strongly dependent on how well you can break that coupling between economic growth and pollution. And so you say, "Okay, go look at my 3% tax because I really like a 3% tax. I think it would work. And the computer comes back and it says, here's 120 or so worlds. Each one of these little boxes is a world with your 3% tax in it. And this world right here is your 3% tax in a world with no economic growth and lots of SUVs. Oh, sorry. (laughs) You're going the wrong way on decoupling pollution from... Okay, are you with me? Okay. So now what does this picture tell you? It says my 3% tax does really good right in here. Of those 10 alternatives, it's the best one in these worlds. It's not too bad up in here. There are other taxes... They do a little better, but, boy, there are a lot better alternatives down here. If you have a whole lot of economic growth rate and you're having trouble decoupling that growth rate from pollution, they're just going to walk over you. They're going to laugh, they're going to pay the fines, and they're just going to go right on polluting. So you say, OK, well, let's compare a couple of strategies. And now the game starts to get interesting. Which of these strategies do you prefer? I mean, this one does really good up here, but if the, if the world comes out like this, there were a lot better strategies you could have used. And you have overwhelming regret if the world shows up like this and you've got a 3% tax out there. But this one doesn't look so hot either. At least it doesn't have any overwhelming regret, though. So now the game is afoot. And you say, OK, well, Maybe a flat tax isn't the way to do it. Maybe a graduated tax. Or maybe a tax against the heaviest polluters. So you come up with some more. Now the human's in the loop saying, let's add some more strategies in here. And then you set the computer off playing all of those strategies against all of these worlds. And now you've got a whole bunch more scenarios to look at and you keep playing this game, and you keep looking at pictures, and you keep coming up with strategies, and you say, ah, strategy 38 and strategy 51 are starting to look pretty good. I like this. We're making some headway now. So you're finally finding a strategy that's again good in a whole lot of worlds. <clears throat> and so then you're saying, Now I'm ready. Now I'm ready to get some more humans involved to make sure that I've got all of the plausible future states of the world. That is, I'm ready to take my strategy out there to people who know about how the world can play out and ask if they can think of any surprise worlds that are going to show up bad for this strategy. So now you put those in here and you let the computer run off again, and you got a whole bunch more things to look at, and you can see how your strategy did. So, this is a way of interacting between computer and human. It's the holy grail, right? In which the computer creates a whole lot of scenarios and does your bidding on searching through those scenarios for the ones that are best, most robust across all of those futures. And the humans are doing what they do best, coming up with these strategy options, looking to improve them, and trying to break or find surprise scenarios that that will unfortunately defeat a strategy that you have so that you have to go back through the strategy loop again. So that's the nature of this technique that we've talked about in the book that we published. This is another way of doing long-term policy analysis. It doesn't come up with an optimal solution. It comes up with a robust solution that uses computers and humans in a very interactive way to come up with solutions that are very robust across a wide variety of scenarios. So we're just about done. That closes off the robust decision-making in the talk. What are the three things I want you to take away? One is, I've obviously convinced you now that long-term policy analysis indeed makes sense, right? Right. There you go. (laughs) Thank you. That is that it does look like there's some purchase that we can make on it. The things we've been doing for a long time, we just haven't gathered them under the name of long-term policy analysis, and haven't thought about whether or not we're using the best methods to do what we're trying to do. And the other should be that a lot of this stuff, I mean, this is just basically a problem-solving paradigm. It's not particular to policies in any way. These tools ought to be good across a whole variety of of long term policies, long term thinking problems. And the third thing is that you may, in fact, there may, in fact, be regions where we can now start to talk about which policy tools to apply to which kinds of problems. And those are the three things that I hope you take away from the talk tonight. And I am off the stage. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is a part of a talk that (laughs) it's another talk. That's next year. That's the teaser for my talk next year.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Jim. Um, My mic live? Yeah, we're good. Got a couple questions here, and I've got one I want to start with because um, besides the book on uh, shaping the next 100 years, which you very kindly left a set of free out on the front table, which is the stuff that that your center is doing. Also, for years, you've been involved in assumption-based planning, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. And um, I can't resist asking if assumption-based planning were used uh, in the workup to the Iraq War, how might things have gone differently? In other words, use that as an example to give folks here a little sense of how assumption-based planning works.
1: Uh, Assumption-based planning basically has five steps to it. And I think of it as a tool for making a plan that you already have more robust. So you take the plan that you have, you say, okay, this is what I'm going to do in Iraq. And you say, okay, that plan is predicated on a variety of assumptions. And now I want to go look for, A, what those assumptions are, and B, which of those assumptions are vulnerable and load-bearing? So vulnerable in the sense that they could break and load-bearing in the sense that if they do, the plan goes with it. And once you've found those vulnerable load-bearing assumptions, then C you want to try to set up signposts that will tell you if those assumptions are breaking. D, you want to try and take shaping actions to keep them from breaking. And E, you want to set up hedging actions in order to best prepare yourself in case they break anyway. So it's a pretty simple, theoretically, it's a pretty simple notion. And the trick is in being able to identify those assumptions. There's a variety of techniques. It's very easy to come up with 85% of your assumptions, but the devil is in those last 15%. So can you come up with the assumptions that you're making that are very implicit? And can you bring those to the surface? And if you can, just bringing them to the surface typically helps you decide what to do about them. And I think what Stuart was saying, suggesting was that in the lead-up to the Iraq War, there were some implicit assumptions that were either kept buried on purpose or were not surfaced. And had they been, we might have made different plans. Uh, you meant, This is a question from Paul Craig. Paul Craig here.
0: Stand up. There he is. The um, question is, you brought up interest rate, and the economists argue about uh, discount rate in the future. Uh, is discount rate a massively misleading concept for long-term policy analysis, and if so, how do you identify the time, the point in time when it fails?
1: Um, I'm not an economist. I've Talked with economists, and I'm a mathematician, so I understand kind of the language they talk. And discount rates are very difficult because they do depend on a time period. If you have a specific time period, you can come up with a much better discount rate, but the longer range doesn't have a nice time period to it. So, uh, very difficult problem to do in general. I'm not sure that answered the question.
0: Well, here's one that uh, people along now have a question as well. Sandeep. Sandeep, really? There you are. Um, Are there other LTPA institutes, long-term policy analysis institutes? Does the party center work with them in coming up with better and or varied strategies for long-term policy analysis? Are there any others out there? Are you guys unique? What's going on?
1: Um... Let me say that there is a Frederick S. Pardee Center at Boston University, and that's the Center for the Study of the Longer uh, Center for the Study of the Long Range Future. And um, so you would think that they were doing the same kind of thing we are. They aren't, in the sense that we're focused on long-term policy analysis. I don't know of anybody else. I'm not going to say dumb enough to think about long term policy analysis, but it's a, a pretty narrow niche. There are a lot of people that think about a variety of techniques for planning at longer ranges, and we certainly pay attention to them and learn from them and share notes. So, a lot of the techniques for doing long range planning are, as I hope became clear, useful in long-term policy analysis as well as a variety of other planning situations. So to the extent that there are other people doing long-range planning, we absolutely pay attention to them and share notes.
0: Uh, Here's one from Mark Finner. Mark here, there he is. Uh, You got any examples for appealing to stakeholders' ambitions?
1: Um, well, I, kind of the classic one is, "Listen, sir or ma'am, you can become famous by being the person who caused this issue to become important and worked." I mean, that's the sort. That's the nature of of trying to appeal to their ambitions. Uh, Peter Schwartz was talking with him last night about how. Well, he got decision-makers' attention at Royal Dutch Shell, and he said the way he did it was, of the seven people that made decisions at Royal Dutch Shell, he had a file that thick on each one, on what they liked, what they didn't like, what they thought about, what they worried about. What, you know, He understood them back and forth and could speak to their worries, their concerns, their hopes. And that's an obvious way to do it, too. I mean, that's clearly very time-intensive, but in Peter Schwartz's case, very successful.
0: That's true. Here's one from Tony Thompson here. Thank you. Um, I'm glad this one came up. Given that you're currently (laughs) teaching about how to prevent societies collapsing, do you have any thoughts about the rise of Muslim fundamentalism that is proving so destabilizing And can a situation as complex and filled with wildcards as the political situation in the Middle East be meaningfully modeled or thought about in the long term?
1: Good question. I think both the Middle East situation and terrorism are long-term issues. That is, they won't be solved. They haven't been solved in the short term. They won't be solved in the short term. Um, To the extent that you can model them, there are certainly pieces that you can model. Um, One of the large issues in the Middle East is water, and you can certainly model water in the long term. So you can start to pick up some specific issues like that and get some long-term purchase on them. But other than that, it's clearly modeling human systems is a lot tougher than modeling physical systems.
0: From George Canciani. Thank you. Where does intuition fit in the justification of long-range planning? Uh, As a mathematician, (laughs) uh, (laughs) what do you have to say about that?
1: If I understand your question, where does intuition fit into the techniques? then clearly george kennan had a very powerful intuition about how to how to solve the soviet problem intuition plays a huge part intuition in intuition is where you get your strategies intuition is where you get your candidates for solutions and uh, that can be mundane intuition or it can be brilliant But that's where they, that's very, very directly where it comes in, is in generating those alternatives. Those don't, there's no systematic way to generate alternatives.
0: Well, here's a question from Ed Cotton. Ed Cotton, over there. It expands on that. How do you select the human experts that challenge the statistical and computational models? You you put a human in the loop there, and, and presumably not just any human will do.
1: Well, sometimes. Um, it's basically a, what, what we would call a red-teaming exercise. You try to get people who are contrary and, and have information about the system. I mean, it helps to have people who don't... One of the things that I, I should have mentioned in those... Let me see if I can get back to those loops. Oh, well, I can see it, so... <laughs> It's right here. (laughs) One of the things about building your model to generate states of the world for you that I really should have said is, suppose somebody comes along and says, that's not the way the world works. The nice thing about having that model as part of the computer system is, you can say back, well, okay, tell me the way your world does work, and I'll put it in there with mine, and now we'll let all of those alternatives go against your worlds too and the futures that play out the way you think the world works. So that's a part of the structural uncertainty and the the sort of thing that you want to bring into long-term policy analysis is let structural guesses about how the world works all play into your long-term thinking.
0: Uh, Here's Tony Thompson again. Given that so much policy tends to zigzag as administrations change, how can our government or any other foster long-term thinking or policy without seeing it ignored by the next administration?
1: Very good question. The answer is I don't know. Um, RAND was set up basically to be an answer to that. That is, RAND was put the story is that it was put on the West Coast to be as far away from Washington as possible. And Rand was intended to be kind of that legacy thinking, that long-term, that thinking over, not only over administrations, but thinking much more objectively. So any way that you can get institutions that are not beholden to the political process you can use them as a as a repository for long-term thinking and if they have credibility then the kinds of policies they come up with are at least more likely to be acceptable to either administration
0: well related to that uh, from lex Lex, back there Um, This is the old, uh, uh, I'll I'll give a summary of it. I think this is the, how do you keep what's urgent from completely blotting out, what's (laughs) crucial? Uh, The way Lex puts it, is there a way to implement a policy so that long-term policies should be followed, being considered more important overall than the short-term thinking of, say, commercial agendas for making money, Uh, genetic engineering, alternative power? All of these have this sense of your... You're looking at short-term monetary gain versus long-term, for example, environmental loss. How do you keep the urgencies from blanking out the crucial stuff?
1: That's clearly hard, but humans clearly do it. I mean, we have an environmental movement now, and we didn't 50 years ago. So uh, we can do it. Uh, It sometimes seems miraculous, but we have quite a few... instances of good long-term thinking that's been inculcated into our culture, and once it is, then the culture carries it on. So we have environmental thinking now in the shortest-term thinking of boardrooms anywhere in America. There's a lot more sensitivity to environmental thinking. How did that come out? Well, over time, people got more and more concerned about it, We forget that people who run businesses do have kids that they worry about, so they do wind up thinking about the longer-range future themselves, and eventually, over time, you can get a long-term thinking problem into the national attention, and once it's there, then everybody pays attention to it.
0: This is from uh, Hazlitt. Where's Hazlitt? Right here. Um, Any thoughts on how to prepare or inspire children to be better long-term planners so that we have (laughs) more planners in the future? And there is an education component here, and how does it play out? Uh,
1: Well, my quick answer was that if we have long-term policy analysis and long-term economics just like we have macroeconomics and microeconomics, then it's taught in school. And um, how to get it down to K-12 or something like that, I haven't really thought about yet. I'll get back to you next year.
0: Here's uh, Sandeep again saying you talked about science fiction. Does Isaac Asimov's concept of psychohistory in the Foundation series uh, seem far-fetched, or is is that a similar path to your long-term policy?
1: (laughs) I'd say the latter. I think it's a, a, a type of of long-term thinking that uh, uh, that pays atten- uh, it's a type of thinking that it pays attention to the long term
0: what science fiction do you read Jim
1: uh, well I have read the foundation series uh, let's see when's the last one I read um it's been a while I have to admit I read Bruce Sterling but not his science fiction I read his book on on The future now, or whatever it is. You
0: mentioned last night. You've had Bruce Sterling at Rand a couple times.
1: Yes, we've uh, had. We do invite science fiction writers to this long-term policy analysis course, and, which is uh, great fun.
0: I can't resist asking uh, what Bruce did besides cut you guys off at the knees. <laughs> uh, what he did on that subject? <laughs> I should get him in this series. He'd be great to have here. Um,
1: well. I claim that he went on from talking to us to writing a book about the future, so I think we had more effect on him than the other way around. (laughs) But uh, he has an iconoclastic view of the future, and the book is interesting in the sense that he takes uh, one of the Shakespeare's, the the Seven Stages of Man speech, and does how he thinks those seven stages of man will unfold over the future. It's a a kind of a dense read, but it's a fascinating approach to thinking about the future by taking these seven things and talking about how they'll play out in a social sense. He's much more interested in how humans react to the long term rather than how machines are going to change the long term.
0: I got, uh, I'm going to finish up with one question. What do you think is the future of uh, the RAND Corporation? You're getting, <laughs> you're getting a new building. That's a big deal.
1: Well, I've uh, been at RAND 25 years. You guys have been
0: around for over 50 years now. You've got another 50 coming. What's, what's <laughs> going to happen here?
1: I've been at RAND 25 years, and when I got there, they'd been talking about the new building for about four or five years before that. And we are literally broke ground last year, and we're going to move in in September of this year so.
0: Is that long-term planning or, or <laughs> pathetic budgeting? Or That's what? long-term
1: procrastination. Actually, this is we were going up against the People's Republic of Santa Monica that didn't want us to build a building. So we was fighting with Santa Monica for 25 years before they finally relented. But no, I think that in the future, long-term policy analysis will dominate at RAND.
0: There's something we can put on the long this I Thank oh, you, Kimberly. you guys are easy.
1: <laughs>
0: Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.